Would you stand with me this morning as we look at our passage, which is found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 31. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Please be seated. When Jesus meets someone like you is the title of our series that we've been working through and discussing about regular people that Jesus encounters and what does it mean when he meets them. How are we like those people? And from our passage today, I want to share with you that when Jesus meets someone like you, he will confront your lies with his truth. Now, I want to do a bit of an exercise with you. I know it's kind of warm, but that's okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you think that it's true, put your hand up. If you think that it's false, just keep your hand down, okay? So let's try an easy one. Is it hot in this room? True. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll move into some other areas. Um, traffic in Lilongwe is difficult at times. At times. 
Flood Church is the best church you've ever been to. <laughs> oh. Uh, I enjoy going to my growth group every Wednesday, Tuesday, or Thursday. The 2019 elections are very certain. So our story takes place on this most gruesome day, on Good Friday. And each of us here are given opportunities to resolve the truth about who Jesus is. But we are influenced by those around us. So even in those simple questions, you're looking at your neighbor to see, are they putting their hand up? Should I? How do I know if it's true? Well, if my neighbor is putting their hand up, then I feel more comfortable to put mine up as well. But here we find ourselves on Good Friday at the, the, the scene just prior to the crucifixion. And for three day, for three hours in the middle of the day, darkness falls upon the land. For surely the horrors the earth had seen that day had never before taken place. But before this, prior to all the terrors seen and experienced, leading up to that all-telling, all-encompassing darkness, a man made a decision. And that's, that's what our life is, isn't it? It's just a series of decisions a series of actions or inactions, crescendoing to significant moments that arrange adventures, decide downfalls, and even determine destinies. And we have our character, the politician, one Pontius Pilate, a colonial foreigner charged with ruling a most unruly corner of the Roman Empire. And he spent 10 years as the governor there this is actually a, an unusually long period of time for someone to have served in that post. And uh, it may actually speak to his ability to serve as a leader, to rule these people. His per political prowess in a tense environment of distrust. So every day he has decisions in his hand. Fates are decided at the flick of his wrist. And aside, this guy, aside from sending our Lord to the cross, he had also done a few other things that were um, not looked upon well. Uh, he built aqueducts, which is like a system of getting water to different places, and paid for them with funds from the temple. So basically using church money to pay for government projects. And most of his time was spent doing these mundane administrative things like tax collecting, managing construction, but he was also the only person who uh, was in charge on behalf of Rome to maintain law and order. And it said that he was a brutal man. What he could not negotiate, he would just force his way through. He had the power of a supreme court, a supreme judge, and he also had the sole authority to decide whether someone lived or died. The majority of the management of Judea was actually left to the aristocracy and to the priesthood, but it was Pilate's job to make sure that Rome's interests were taken care of. He was very skilled at making sure that Rome was protected, that the people of Judea were kept calm, and there was relative peace. Certainly not an easy task, and as we look at the passage, we can see Jesus is an important figure, but this is really a story about Pilate, a, a man making decisions. It's about what he's going to do in the midst of, these, of his difficult choice. It's about the voices that he allows to influence his decisions, 
the shouts that he lets creep into his mind, and the taunts that actually sway his verdict one way or the other. It's about the lies that he allows to determine his decision. So what about us? What about you? What about me? What about my husband? What about your wife? What about your children? What are the voices that we're giving sound to in our lives? Who are the people that we're allowing to influence us, both in critical moments, but also in the mundane minutes? For Pilate, these voices told very specific lies in the very presence of truth. The truth was, Jesus was the king of the Jews. The passage starts with a, a very simple scene of Jesus standing before Pilate, having been brought there by the chief priests and the elders. And Pilate asks him one simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, having been asked a simple question, gives a simple answer and says five words. It is as you say. It is as you say. But these words of truth are totally drowned out by surrounding noise. And the noise carried various agendas, purposes, plans, all of these entirely against five simple words. So I want us to consider four groups of people today found within this passage. They wanted this truth to be silenced for their preferred lie. The first group is the priests, and the lie they believed is the lie of religion. These guys were filled with a self-righteous anger. It was entirely consuming. Their positions were threatened, their identities were in danger, and they had a centuries-long stranglehold on the spiritual life of a, of a nation, and this was totally at risk. And what do you do when the most important thing in your life is at risk? You hold on to it. You hold on to it with all that you are, with everything that you have, no matter what it costs. The lie of religion says your actions are more important than your spirituality, or your deeds are more important than your discipleship. Now, just consider with me for a moment. Consider that would true disciples of Yahweh actually commit to murdering a man? Would those who carefully obey every commandment and statute found within the law of Moses ever bring a fellow Israelite to be killed by a pagan foreigner? No, definitely not. But the lie of religion has told them that because they have accorded themselves with a particular set of beliefs, they must follow through with such preposterous ideas. Because the lie of religion says that your position is more important than your posture. These priests and elders, they knew very well what they would risk, what they would lose if, in fact, Jesus were the king of the Jews. The control they had over the temple, the control they had over the temple tax, the ownership of the religious holidays and festivals, the very grip that they had on Judean society would be totally ruined because everything they've seen and experienced about Jesus up until this point had nothing to do with money, had nothing to do with power or control or hunger for even more. Everything he said had to do with giving, with healing, with restoring, with being with sinners, with spending time with meek and lowly people. 
His actions and his words shared with the religious people of the day were not encouraging words, but they were always rebuke, admonition, and theological correction. Because the lie of religion says that your tradition outweighs the truth. There is nothing more fearful for these Jews than to let go of their traditions and their cultural preferences. If we, look, if we were to dissect every uh, tradition at the time that was being um, experienced within uh, the priests, we would be found, we would find that they are totally encapsulated by counterfeit derivatives. But they held on with a tight, tight grip. <clears throat> now, uh, I attended seminary in Toronto, and it was close to a, an urban area that was, uh, had a very high density of a Jewish population. And there are many high-rise apartment buildings in that neighborhood, and they all come with something called a Sabbath elevator. And what happens is that on Saturday, the elevator is set so that it stops at every floor all day long. So if you live on the 10th floor, you get in, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, and they stop at every floor. And do you know why? In order to avoid the work of pressing the button on, a sa- on the Sabbath. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> then you have to wonder, well, what if the elevator breaks down because of such overexertion and the repairman has to come out? But it's a Saturday. Are you going to allow him to fix it? Or is using the stairs work? I mean, there's all kinds of theological uh, questions about that. It's pretty interesting. And we look at that and we think, whoa, that's crazy. But guys, we have those things here too in our own church culture that we have to confront. And there are things that we like because we're familiar with them, because they're comfortable to us. We've grown up with them and they've become part of us. But you know what? They may not actually be founded in biblical truth. You know, I'm very certain when God, when Yahweh gave the commands regarding the Sabbath, he <laughs> didn't have a Sabbath elevator in mind, you know, six or 8,000 years later. But we have to surrender those things to the truth of Jesus' words, that he is the king. It is as you say. He is the king. So in our passage, things are heating up. Blood is boiling. Tempers are spilling over into the crowds. And they want an answer. They want justice. They want blood. They want someone to pay for their pent-up frustration. And so they rely on a traditional custom, and they ask for this prisoner, Barabbas, to be released. And they are confronted with the lie of exchange. The prisoner, Barabbas, was a notorious criminal. He has wreaked havoc on his community in countless ways for so long that he's justly earned himself an execution. There is no one in the crowd who doesn't know him, who doesn't know what he's done, who has not somehow been touched by his violence or who has, heard of his, who has not heard of his horrible deeds. Yet still, these people are blinded by their own rage, by their disgust for Jesus. And they demand that this despicable man should be released. Let him go. Be set free. Let him be set free in order to ensure that Jesus is crucified. 
because the lie of exchange says that you will be satisfied. In their anger and their rage, the people demand that Jesus be crucified and that this thieving criminal be released. Their obsession just blinds them to the very plain facts in front of them. One man is innocent. One man is guilty. In accordance with the law, one man deserves death and the other man deserves freedom. The Roman governor, Pilate, he can plainly see the truth before him, yet these people who are so filled with hate believe that if only Jesus is crucified instead of this criminal, everything will be fine. The lie of exchange says you will be satisfied in the garden. Just eat this small piece of fruit and you will be like God and have all the knowledge. Just have sex with your girlfriend and you won't compromise your future marriage. Just cheat on your exams. Don't worry, you can still graduate with distinction. So the lie of exchange tells us that we can give up truth and hold on to a lie and be satisfied. That it won't leave us craving something more. It promises satisfaction. Now I want to tell you a story about something that happened at our house. Uh, in September of 2016, uh, a thief came over the wall and stole a few things just from outside, including a chair from our conde. Now, following this incident, our own night guard saw a man sitting in the chair in a community close to our house. So he came to our house, he got our day guard, they gathered some men together, and they performed a citizen's arrest. They took him to Area 18 police, and he was put into jail. Now, at this time, we were in Canada, and my uncle was actually here in Malawi staying at our house. And he emailed the whole story and said, you don't really want to press charges, do you? And uh, he's just being a nice guy. <laughs> you know, and Jeff and I wrestled over it, and we thought, well, if we get the chair back, that's probably good enough. Hopefully, he's learned his lesson. So we hoped that that would be his last theft, and we just decided not to press charges. However, of course, now our night guard knows where he lives because he's seen him sitting in the chair, and he became known within our neighborhood. So then about one year later, the night guard informs us that this same thief, further emboldened, climbed yet another fence in our area in an attempt to quench this unquenchable thirst. Except this time he was not so lucky. In his disillusion, he believed that the lie would be satisfied, or he believed the lie that he would be satisfied. And so in climbing the fence, he sealed his own destiny because on the other side of the fence was someone who was not interested in letting him off. On the other side of the fence was someone with a gun. On the other side of that fence was someone who chased this thief, shot him, and proceeded to hack off one of his limbs with a panga knife. And somehow, he survived. And you can be very certain that the person on the other side of that fence pressed charges. And he's now in jail. But this is the lie that we believe. We believe 
We can exchange the truth of Christ for something else and still be satisfied. The people believed, oh, we'll be satisfied once Jesus is dead. Yet each of us, every single person in this room, you know that nagging sense of dissatisfaction when you try to exchange truth for a lie. Because the lie of exchange says there is an equal to Jesus. In their hearts filled with wickedness, the crowds pushed Pilate to make a decision. And though he knew that Jesus was innocent, Pilate himself exchanged him for Barabbas in order just to stop the crowd from rioting, just to silence the chaos all around him. His political motivations, he just wanted to maintain the peace, just keep everyone calm, protect the uh, interests of Rome. And these things took him to a decision that he probably never would have made were it not for the pressure from these people to release this notorious criminal. And friends, I'll say it to you today, there is no equal to Jesus. There is no one, there is nothing that can ever replace him. Your empty heart cannot be filled with the pleasures of this world. Your broken spirit, the things that keep you awake at night because of how upset you are and the mistakes you've made, none of that can be filled with the pleasures of this world. Your broken spirit can't be mended by the medicinal effects of drugs and alcohol. Your tattered soul cannot find its healing within any other relationship, with any relationship offered to you by man, woman, or child. If I could just get this one, then I would be satisfied. If I could just go out with this one, oh, it would be wonderful. If I could just have a child, I would be satisfied. There is no equal to Jesus, yet Pilate motivated by his own political aspirations and the pressures surrounding him, he gave in to the lie that something, the lie of exchange, something could be traded for Jesus and everything would be fine. Number three is the people. The people believed the lie of envy. The fact of the matter is that the issue at hand was not related to Caesar or to their concern for peace and tranquility within the government, or even the sacredness of their theology. It was entirely related to envy. And the lie of envy says that the problem will disappear with the culprit. The people believed that if Jesus could just be gotten rid of, then they could return to their previous way of existing and things would go on as they had. But Pilate is watching and he's listening to the crowds and he knew that within their hearts lay a deep and abiding envy of Jesus and the deeds he had done. Undoubtedly, he was a politically savvy person. He knew exactly how to appeal to these people because he knew what motivated them. At this point in Pilate's uh, political rule, he had spent about seven years with these people. So he got to know them, got to understand them. And he would know very well why they so deeply desired the death of Jesus. Jesus was popular with the people. He'd been the agent through which the miraculous gifts of God were seen and displayed, and they were jealous. They were jealous of his success and reputation, and they grudged him his marvelous powers. They were bitter, bitter about the way that he attacked corruption among the Pharisees and Sanhedrin. Their own popularity had been undermined by this man from Nazareth. Pilate did not need a divine revelation from heaven to know what was in their hearts. Because the lie of envy says that the inner condition is hidden. 
The lie of envy makes you believe that no one else knows about it. This is a very deep condition of our heart, and unfortunately, you might think you're keeping it secret from other people. But the truth is, if Pilate, who's a pagan foreigner living among God's own people, can see it, then those around us can also see it. Living this way, with having a heart full of envy, it's not possible to keep hidden. And Pilate, he still gives them the opportunity to release Jesus. He's operating in this sort of indirect way to save the victim of this vindictive plot, and he gives them an option. He gives them a way out. Within himself, he knew very well Jesus had done nothing wrong, nothing worthy of death. So he allowed them to give another answer. But the lie of envy corrupted not only their hearts, but actually swayed them to break one of the sacred Ten Commandments, to commit murder because of the envy within their own hearts. The lie of envy whispers quietly, and it will not be ignored. It even becomes a loud shout in the ear, and it says, the motives outweigh the actions. That's the lie of envy, saying the motives outweigh the actions. (coughs) Do you think that the people knew that Jesus was innocent? Or did the way that his actions make them feel outweigh his innocence? Within our hearts, envy will cause us to do great and terrible things. And when we consider those from an outside perspective, they're far more horrific than they seem in the moment. It's not what Jesus did that made them so angry. He's basically an outspoken preacher, right? It's not those things that made him angry. But it's the way that he made them feel that caused them to rise up in such a way. They wanted to stop feeling this way. And so they justified their actions by exclaiming that not only would Jesus' blood be upon them, but even on their own children. Now, I ask you, would a rational person thinking with a logical mind declare that their own countless children should be guilty of the blood of one innocent man? I mean, it doesn't even make sense. It's so illogical, but they're so motivated by their own envy that they're just willing to go to any length to soothe their hearts. They don't actually care how far it will go. They were willing to take it as far as they possibly could. They thought even murder would save their predicament, would solve their problem. (coughs) Put down each and every enemy, hunger, disease, envy. This line from our Malawian national anthem gives insight into the struggles that this nation faces, our nation faces. When Mr. Sauka wrote these words, he named envy as an enemy. In the same line with hunger and disease, and I think about that, because the lie that envy tells is that it will disappear once the object of the envy disappears. I'm so jealous of my neighbor because they have that car, but if they move away, I will be fine. (laughs) 
I'm so jealous of my sister's beautiful hair, but if, it just, if she just cuts it off, I'll be fine. Once Jesus was crucified, do you think that people stopped being envious? No. I mean, then he, he rose from the dead. <laughs> so that was sort of another thing to be envious about. <laughs> and if it wasn't the resurrection of Christ that their envy focused on, it would have been something else, someone else. No, the lie of envy can only submit to the lordship of Christ himself. He is the king. It is as you say. He is king. And when we submit that lie of envy to Christ, it's dissipated. Sometimes it's going to be a battle. But as we continually submit that to him over and over again, it will be solved. It will melt eventually. The last person to look at is the plagued. <clears throat> this is Pilate's wife who presents him with the lie of passivity. As Pilate wrestles with the lies of religion and exchange and envy, he also faced this lie of passivity. His dear wife, perhaps no one closer to him, warned him, please remove yourself from this situation. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. She had been tormented in a dream about Jesus, and so as any caring woman would, she warned her husband to just completely absolve himself of anything to do with Jesus. And once again, Pilate had a choice to make, and the lie of passivity says that walking away makes it go away. Now, whether or not Pilate decided to do as his wife suggested, the anger of the crowd and Jesus' claim as their king would not disappear. We tell ourselves these kinds of lies all the time. If I just end this relationship, that will solve my problem with lust. If I stop going to that bar, that will so I will no longer want to drink alcohol. As long as I don't go to that town or that district or that region or that country, I won't spew any hate toward people who are different from me. The lie of passivity makes you believe that if you actually physically leave the problem, it will somehow solve itself. But it's just not the case. I left my parents in Canada, but their drama followed me here. <laughs> and Pilate listens to this lie of passivity. He thinks that if he can just tell the people that he's done, he's out, he's, his hands are clean, he's washed them in front of him, in front of them, that he will actually be free of having to make a decision about Jesus, but he's not. Our Lord's five words stay the same. It is as you say. We are the same as Pilate. We're faced with the same identity of Jesus, and sometimes we listen to those passive lies around us. The lie of passivity says that inaction is equal to innocence. Pilate did nothing, so that means he's innocent, right? Of course not. In an effort to save her dear husband the grief that she herself has had a glimpse of, Pilate's wife hopes he'll simply forget the words that he has heard King Jesus say and the accusations that the people have flung at him on this fateful Friday. But it's impossible. It's impossible for Pilate to do that. And how many of us are guilty of thinking that same way? The thought is, if I do nothing, then I'm not accountable. If we enjoy 
our lifestyles and our affluence, yet do nothing to help the poor and the lowly among us. We are not innocent. If we do nothing to stop the violence our neighbor receives at the hand of her husband, or the child who doesn't go to school because of their orphan status, or the teenage girl who gets married because of pressure from her family, if we do nothing, we're not innocent. It doesn't mean you can do everything, but it means we have to do something. And the same is true with our relationship with Christ as Pilate faced here. We cannot stand in his presence, having heard the very words of his identity spoken by him and do nothing. A decision must be made and not simply a neutral one, not one that just involves going to church on Sunday and living like the devil from Monday to Saturday. A decision about the truth of his words has to be made. And the lie of passivity says that recognition of fact equates obedience to truth. Pilate's wife knew very well that Jesus was innocent. She named him as a righteous person. We can't know the details of her dream or what encounter she had, but maybe she had a dream about the effects of what it would mean to exact such cruelty on an innocent person. Maybe she dreamt about what would happen to Pilate if he went ahead with the execution. But whatever the case, Pilate took her words to heart and began to consider another solution. However, never once, never once did he admit to the surrounding crowd that Jesus was innocent, that Jesus was righteous or that Jesus was their king. And instead, he looked for an immediate solution that might absolve the growing panic he was facing. The same is true for us, friends. We can't simply acknowledge the identity of Jesus by saying, yes, yes, he is the Lord, without allowing it to change the way that we operate, to influence the choices we make, to penetrate our everyday lives. We have to stop living in ways that are compartmentalized. We have to let ourselves open every area of our lives to the truth of who Christ is. He is our king. So then why do we live like he's king of Sunday, but on Monday we put ourselves back on the throne until Sunday rolls again, rolls around again next week? You can't simply recognize that Jesus is king, but you have to obey him as such. And it will definitely cost something. It always costs something. Pastor Sean is always coaching us along in our preaching, which I'm so grateful for. And so I sent him my outline, and he responded saying, okay, great, now just let me know which personal story you're going to use about your own life so that people can know that you are relating to the story as well. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> and I thought, what, what, what are the lies that I have believed? And so I'm working on this. And the Lord spoke very specifically about one. For the last month, I have been believing a lie. Jeff and I had a significant expense. And we thought it would be covered by our sending organization. And we recently found out that it would not be. So we thought, well, maybe they just don't really understand how special we are. <laughs> so
So we proceeded to more fully explain why it was necessary by giving very, very personal details about our families, our own situation. We really thought that once we really explain ourselves and they understand us, they will help us. Once they knew more about why we needed this thing, why we were vulnerable in this area, they would help us. And instead, the person who I had been corresponding with replied with her own experience, with her own personal details, and assured me, she has dealt with it, so don't worry, you will deal with it as well. <laughs> I hope she's not listening online. <laughs> and I went away from this interaction like totally crushed. And I shared yesterday uh, with the oversight team about how I felt so frustrated by this. I felt dehumanized, I felt taken advantage of. I believed that this organization would help me when I made myself vulnerable to them because of how challenging this circumstance is. I believed they'd help me because they would see my pain, but instead the policy that governs everyone else must also govern me. But couldn't they, couldn't they see our situation, our unique set of circumstances? Our family has challenges that are different from others. I mean, I am out here in Malawi. I've raised money to work for this organization. They take a very healthy 10% admin fee that pays all their salaries. And now they won't help me. Jerks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Edith, but sometimes I can <laughs> say whatever I want. <laughs> That's not true. And I was angry. I was filled with self-righteous rage that was leading me to all kinds of unholy thoughts and potential ideas and things that I could do to really grab justice for myself. I had a lot of ideas of how, what I would write back, what I would respond, what kind of actions I would take, and how I would make it right. But over the course of the last few days, I've come to the realization that I was believing a lie. I believed... I believed the lie that the organization would meet my need instead of asking God to meet it. I believed the lie that I could sort it out on my own with just the right words and r the right emotions and the right circumstance. And I know that I'm not alone here. I know there are some of us that have also been believing a lie. It might be a lie from our passage today. Which one? Is it the lie of religion? The lie that tells you what you are doing is actually more important than how you are developing as a disciple of Jesus. What about the lie of exchange? Have you believed that you would be satisfied with something other than Jesus? That there is someone or something that's equal to Jesus? Maybe it's the lie of envy. Have you believed that the problem of envy in your heart would just disappear with the one who was causing it? What about the lie of passivity? Have you believed that if you do nothing, it means you are innocent? When Jesus meets someone like you, he wants you to exchange the lies you've believed for the truth of who he is. He is the king of the Jews. He is 
the King of Kings. He is kind. He is generous. He is good. He is lovely. He is faithful. He will not forsake you. He will never leave you. He loves you. Let's go back just to our scripture as I get ready to close this morning to those last five verses or so. If I can get that on the screen. And I want you to close your eyes because I want us to think about this scene. Everyone, close your eyes as we think about Jesus being led by Roman soldiers, stripping him, putting a scarlet robe on him, a crown of thorns placed on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they mock him. They spit on him, and they take the reed and begin to beat him on the head. Friends, we're there today. The sins that we have, the lies that we believe, actually mock Jesus. Jesus. 